Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy from the South Asia Center. On behalf of our colleagues and our management, I'd like to welcome Brigadier Segal. Um, he's has a has a privilege of being our first speaker as part of our MacArthur project. Um, this project is graciously supported by the MacArthur Foundation, where we assess strategic stability in South Asia. And without wasting much time, today is a hot day, I know, and you've come to listen to a really hot topic. And <laughs> Brigadier Segal is one of the foremost experts in this subject and is a recognized authority. So I will not waste much time, and I'll let Brigadier Segal get right, dive right into his presentation. Um, I'm also told that he's around in town for a little bit, so you can harass him after the project too. I take the liberty of letting him be harassed by you guys. But why don't you just start and okay. kick off remarks? It will, all remarks are on the record. You'll go for 20 minutes? Yeah, 20 minutes, maximum. Maximum 20 minutes, and then we'll dive into a question answer session. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. And uh, what brings me to DC is that I'm on a short project with the Sandia Labs. And the trip has been graciously facilitated by Sandia Labs as part uh, of my project, which deals with uh, strategic stability in South Asia. Uh, we are trying to, we have been doing a large number of games uh, on this issue to, together with our Pakistani colleagues. And uh, the idea is that we feel that we haven't done enough of simulation uh, of the various points of concern and inflection points as far as the strategic stability debate is concerned. So this morning I was at Hudson, so I gave them a little talk on what my project is all about. And tomorrow we're going to go to NISA, the Wargaming Center, to learn about the techniques, etc., which they are using, and then follow that up with other trips to CSBA and other institutions. But this afternoon, uh, I'm going to be talking about India's nuclear command and control. Uh, there have been a large number of briefings on the Pakistani nuclear command and control at the official level, and uh, and and by and large, people are very uh, much aware of their command and control systems. But uh, as far as India is concerned, India there has been a certainly not enough coming out in the public discourse. So the disclaimer from my side is that what I'm going to talk about is not the official or anywhere close to the Indian position. This, this presentation has been put together by me as part of uh, another initiative that I am part of, that is the Ottawa Dialogue, and where we have been discussing nuclear command and control issues. And uh, in a couple of meetings back, we, we had, had a detailed paper from our Pakistani colleagues on their nuclear command and control. So we said that let us put together this, this topic of an Indian nuclear command control, and that we, I made the first presentation on this in a bilateral dialogue with the Americans at Bangkok. So I'm going to share some of the thoughts and, uh, and, and the perceptions that go about in, in, in how the Indian uh, thinking on its nuclear command control is. So I titled my topic, India's Nuclear Command Control Safety and Security. The, the terms of reference that define this whole issue is, the first issue is the credible minimum deterrence. The whole ethos of, of India's uh, command and control is based on credible minimum deterrence, followed by no first use posture. And India's no first use posture is written in sand. Sorry, in written in cement, not sand. <laughs> Pun intended, both ways. 
uh, and actions on threat of use. So the bottom line is that India shall not respond first, but shall respond if attacked. And retaliation will be massive and de designed to inflict unacceptable damage. Fourth, and it's voting, most important part is the command and control is totally and completely under civilian control. There is no oversight by the military as far as the command and control question is concerned. Military certainly forms part of the system and an integral part of the system, but it has got nothing to do with the military. So it's totally under the civilian control. The options for retaliating with nuclear weapons in the event of a major attack are or even if India is attacked by biological and chemical weapons, then of course the normal disclaimers, we believe in strict control and export of nuclear and missile related materials, technologies and participation in fissile material control treaty negotiations and have done a voluntary moratorium on testing which we abide by and then we have a continued commitment to goals of nuclear weapon free world but in a discriminatory disarmament, non-discriminatory disarmament. As far as uh, implications are concerned, I'll just I'll put some bullet points over here. Uh, India believes its deterrence is a political deterrence and is not for war fighting. The two key elements of our entire deterrence philosophy are survivability of our weapon systems and protection. The survivability and protection goes hand in hand, backed up by robust communication, inbuilt redundancies, redundancies, and there is a constant technological evolution to ensure these, these remain in play. Uh, the numbers are dynamic, although it's CMD, but within the construct of CMD, the numbers are dynamic, and they, that they are dictated by how we see the development taking place in our neighborhood. And it is not one neighborhood which we are concerned about, it are two neighborhoods we are concerned about. And one is, of course, Pakistan, and the other is even more important to us, is the dynamics of the Chinese and nuclear modernization and the kind of capacities that they are developing. Uh, the, there is an increased accent on developing credible and adequate C4 I2SR, that is command control information, computers, intelligence, information, surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities. And, and also because of the fact that we are at no first use, there is a huge amount of accent on having a credible and a flexible CUDA loop. Basically, the decision cycle has to be so that we are responsive adequately and in time. Response adequate and in time. So that is the uh, second aspect. So what are the principles shaping India's nuclear command and control? This is what our doctrine states. The Indian nuclear doctrine states that nuclear weapons shall be tightly controlled and released for use at the highest political level. Therefore, the authority for release of India's nuclear weapons rests in the hands of the Prime Minister. 
or his designated successors, which basically means that there is a designated line of succession which has been, which exists within the nuclear command and control. An effective and survivable command and control system with the requisite flexibility and responsiveness. Flexibility and responsiveness basically means is that despite the fact that India has accepted to not to retaliate first and accept the initial damage of, of a first nuclear strike, it must have the flexibility and, and ability for adequate response. There are, therefore, there are operational planning has been done in a fashion that this kind of capacities are inbuilt in the overall structure. Uh, this is an important point I'm trying to make is that the operational plans have been so created in order to build in the adequate number of sequential plans. So therefore, if there is a credible damage to our overall strike uh, capability, we have the flexibility for an effective response. There is an effective employment of unity of command and control of nuclear forces. Basically means there is generally a perception that the army is on a different uh, wavelength, that the air force has got difference and the navy is on a different construct. I'm afraid that's not true. They are all synergized and they are all part of a one, one fairly effective system that operates. Uh, survivability of the nuclear arsenal and the effective command and control communications is to be assured Indian Defense Forces are prepared to operate in NBC environment. Now, this is something which I like to elaborate upon. There is this perception that uh, there are tactical nuclear weapons, etc., in use in the subcontinent. The point I'm trying to make is that Indian mechanized forces are ready and prepared and are being prepared to operate in the NBC environment. So bottom line is that there would be a damage to a combat command if it's operating, but it does not mean the operation shall cease. They would be able to operate in those environments. So this is, this is the meaning and, and we hope it will be through minimal degradation. We are also trying to integrate space-based systems and there's a huge amount of accent on developing space-based capabilities, provide early warning communication and damage and detonation assessment. Operational perspectives, nuclear command structure. Forces are structured based on being effective, enduring, diverse, flexible and responsive in keeping with the concept of CMD. We are trying to develop a triad. Triad is not fully operational as yet, uh, but with Arihant, now undergoing sea trials, that's an uh, indigenous nuclear submarine. The, we would have a minimalistic triad capability in K-15 Sagrika sea launch ballistic missile system, uh, which by about 2017 or 2018, we should have our Agni force with uh, ranges close to about 2,500 to 3,500 if there are no technical glitches also coming up uh, for operations. So we should be by say min latest by 2020 
have reasonably developed triad operational. Survivability of forces enhanced through a combination of redundant systems, mobility, dispersion, and deception. Dispersion, dispersion and deceptions are an important construct of our, of our command and control system, primarily from the fact that we have to survive the first strike. Uh, so therefore, there is a huge amount of accent being paid on both disperse, dispersion and deception. Uh, there is an assured capability to shift from peacetime deployment to fully employable status in shortest possible time. Now, the, the, the criticality of this issue, I just want to explain for a moment. See, the, the issue that is coming about and which is becoming more critical to us is that should there be a use of military power under any adverse circumstances by India, Looking at the doctrinal perception on the other side of the border, there is this whole issue of linking conventional stability with limited or battlefield nuclear weapons. Now, once you do that, the, the problem comes about is that, and there is this Indian doctrine of credible and, and punitive response, then the problem that is occurring now is that at some stage a decision has to be taken that integral to the conventional mobilization, do we also undergo, undertake some kind of a strategic mobilization included as part of an inclusive exercise. So this is a dilemma that the country faces. And this dilemma is being created by the fact that the other side has most nonchalantly exhibited the fact that they have tactical nuclear weapons and which are being used for battlefield use. So if there is going to be, uh, under any circumstances, use of conventional military power in India, the political authority will, be, will have to face with this dilemma of nuclear mobilization. So this is something which, which I'm not saying that we will do it. I'm not saying that we will not do it. But this is something that will cross our mind. And that for that, political decisions will also have to be taken. This point, the second point in this is that there shall be a certain preparations done to deal with the impact of battlefield use of nuclear weapons. That's the point I'm trying to make. Then, of course, the standard procedures of credibility, survivability, and effectiveness. These are standard operating norms of any system. Uh, as far as the CMD is concerned, for us, adequate is a relative term and is determined by these criteria. Size of arsenal of the adversaries, his doctrinal thinking, technological capabilities, and capacity in launching first strike own capacity to withstand first strike in terms of absorption, damage, and to be able to retaliate adequately. Now, we are clear that CMD is a function of a short and credible retaliatory capability. And this, again, I like to highlight, is not park-centric. Our our capability 
is not country-centric but threat-centric. And it, in, in that case, we also take into account the nuclear threat from China under various circumstances. Then, of course, the issue of survivability. This is, this is given a high credence in our system. There are hardened structures being created. Both the national command posts and other elements, are, there are hardened structures. There is a full-fledged coordination between the Strategic Forces Command, which is well equivalent to our SPD, Strategic Plans Division, or actually more akin to 20, uh, the, uh, the uh, Chinese uh, Second Artillery Corps, uh, which coordinates the and integrates the working of the DRDO, that is Defense Research and Development Organization, Department of Atomic Energy, and also, of course, the Strategic Forces Command. Uh, the SFC has now become the prime integrator of all elements of India's nuclear command and control structure. And there was this issue of a custodian and controller perception. The custodians were the bark who had the weapon, that is our atomic research center, and the, the arming device was with the DRDO and the controller were the, the missile systems were with the strategic forces command. Now this loop has been fused and all elements have become now an integrated part of the system. Now the, the important point to note which I want to highlight is that while it is not being done at the SFC level, this loop is being controlled and made shortened by the National Security Advisor in his capacity as the head of the Executive Council, becoming the overall, the overarching architect of the overall India's command structure. I'll explain it further when I go ahead. It resulted in improved coordination, infrastructure development, and with credible communications redundancy, including EMP hardening, etc. Emphasis is on concealment, deception, mobility. See, uh, the, the point regarding this concealment and mobility, etc., comes into play is that a country which is faced with the first strike has to upgrade its postures at it practically under fire. So, so there has to be a certain degree of, of uh, assured flexibility, movement timings, deployments, etc., and some preemptive and contingency plans which have to be made much more in detail than the side which has to, which takes the initial decision to use nuclear weapons. So, in that context, these issues need to be seen. Okay. Now I come to the organizational structure. Uh, unfortunately, India being a democracy and a fairly fractious democracy, the problem is the political side and the military side are acting in a silo. The political wing and the military wing has this gap, not integrated. So, the political side comprises of the cabinet, 
Cabinet Committee on Security, the, the Parliament, etc., etc., Prime Minister, National Security Council, Rakshamanthi, and the military side. So there is no integration. Now, but the nuclear command and control requires integration. How do you get that integration? So I'll show you a novel methodology, which is again very, very India's, what they call Jugaad kind of a system that has been created. And so I'll come to that. Firstly, about the Indian Cabinet Committee on Security, for those of us who are not really know about it, it's an apex body responsible for all matters concerning national security. It's in the cabinet system, the prime minister is the chief executive, but and its members are defense, internal security, minister of internal security, external affairs. But this is not the full composition. The prime minister can include anybody, so it's personality driven. He can pick up anybody, any of the cabinet ministers and bring him into this. Our service chiefs are not part of this, but are mere invitees. It's an important point to note. They are not part of the Cabinet Committee on Security, and they are invited only when required. Similar is the situation with our intelligence chiefs and other members. But then there is a National Security Council. This parallels the CCS, but has two important members. One is the National Security Advisor and the Deputy Chairman of Planning Commission, which has now been converted into a think tank called Niti Adyog. And within the National Security Council, there are two groups which support the National Security Council. One is called the Strategic Policy Group. Strategic Policy Group is a committee of secretaries who look at the overall infrastructure development for the national security and are responsible for threat assessments and capability development. And then there is the National Security Advisory Board who are tasked by these people, strategic policy group, to carry out periodic reviews on various issues concerning the national security. And then there is the Secretariat of the National Security Council is called the National Security Council Secretariat, as also houses the Joint Intelligence Committee, which provide them with support, information, and do the day-and-day -day administration. So in practice, what happens in the Indian system is the political guidance for national security comes from the CCS, and the national security management including war planning and the higher direction of war comes from National Security Council. So this is our Jugaad system. Chairman, Chiefs of Staff Committee, etc., etc., are not the people responsible for the higher direction of war in political military terms. In the political military terms, the National Security Council are the guys who are responsible for this. Then we have the Chiefs of Staff Committee, which is by and large a committee which manages the three services in a consensus sort of a manner. They don't really have much of a say. Uh, and uh, we are that trying to vie for a CDS or a permanent chairman Chiefs of Staff Committee. Large number of reports have been given, but it remains 
an issue under political consideration for last 15, 20 years and it continues till date. So what does India's nuclear command authority look like? It has got two councils. It has a political council which by and large mirrors the cabinet committee on security. But it has invitees. Now these gentlemen are now by and large permanent invitees. Service chiefs, cabinet secretary, chairman atomic energy commission and the director general of the DRDO. This is the political council which takes the takes overall political decisions with regard to development, creation of capability, management and use of nuclear weapons. And then we have the executive council, which is called the chairman, is the national security advisor and these are the members, service chiefs, the DGDRDO, chairman atomic energy commission, our intelligence chiefs, and the secretary of the executive council is the commander in chief of the strategic forces. So in our system, therefore, the entire aspect of planning development of the nuclear assets and India's nuclear capability is done over here in the National Security Council and not anywhere else in SFC or anything like that. To assist the National Security Council after a series of internal iterations and debates and discussions, a new group has been created called the Strategic Planning Staff. I'm sure a large number of you have heard of it. Strategic planning staff's basic responsibility is to de develop a 10 years perspective plan for India's nuclear deterrent. It is responsible to see the over reliability and quality of nuclear weapons and delivery systems. It also collates intelligence and other nuclear weapon uh, uh, related aspects of weapon, nuclear weapon states, particularly those who can be potential adversaries. It comprises of service personnel, technical personnel, administrative personnel, foreign service personnel, and has a total strength of about 25 to 30 people. It is a sort of a think tank operating directly under the National Security Advisor. The leader of this group is by always the just retired commander in chief of the Strategic Forces Command. We have just recently we made a change from this principle primarily because the incumbent in chair died because of unfortunate cancer. So we have made a slight change for the moment, but as soon as the last man is available who is currently serving, he will take over as the head of the strategic planning staff. So the idea is to bring about a desired degree of continuity between the Strategic Forces Command, the Strategic Planning Staff, and the NSA, NCA. Uh, strategic Forces Command was created to exercise control over country's nuclear assets and is responsible for their operational reliability. It's, it is solely responsible to execute nuclear decisions following explicit political approval like I said, it's like India's version of the Second Artillery Corps. It manages and administers strategic forces by exercising complete control over nuclear assets, operational readiness, and also responsible for developing contingency plans to fulfill the required tasks. 
responsible for manning the NCA and the alternate NCA. The NCA per se, where the national command posts, or you can call national command posts, both the main and the alternate are manned by these people. Command and control is exercised through component commanders who exercise control over the respective vectors. Uh, unlike uh, in, on, on the other side where there are SFC, Army, Navy, Air Force, we have one SFC, but there are component commanders by and large system is the same and they exercise control over their respective vectors. And, and they are also responsible for operational readiness, deployment, and firing of the respective vectors on orders. So, so command and control is exercised by the SFC to the component commanders, who component commanders who deploy uh, their the respective vectors, and they are used and fired through the com communication channels through the SFCs and to the component commanders. Uh, target selection is a function of the SFC. Please note, there is a lot of debate outside who does the target selection, etc., etc. Some of the very eminent uh, academics in, in this country have written about the, the, the something woolly-headedness of India's target selection policy, etc. No, it's all done by the SFC and there's an iterative process which goes through the strategic planning staff and, and approved at the executive council level and the final authority of course approval is done by the political council but the the as far as the planning and the planning approvals are given at the executive council level they are also developed, they are also responsible for integrated c4i2 system which have been developed and are firmly in place and operational like I said, it's a multidisciplinary body. SFC is not a services organization. It used to be, it comes technically under, if you see the order of this thing in, in, the, in the Ministry of Defense website, etc., SFC comes under the Chairman Chiefs of Staff Committee. The short answer is no. SFC, as of now, in functional terms, comes under the Executive Council headed by the National Security Advisor. So, therefore, it is important to understand because it comes under a civilian authority, the elements of DRDO, AEC, Atomic Energy Commission and other have been integrated with this. So, this is the overall structure of the Indian Nuclear Command Authority. Uh, we have the political council, executive council, SFC, strategic planning staff, and the three groups. The army missile group, which controls the land vectors. The air force component is with the air force, which basically means is it's a dual use component. The, the strategic strike fighters are, are, will be released, important point to note, when released to the SFC, they would be under the charge of the Air Force component commander of the SFC. They will not be an Air Force asset. Air Force will have nothing to do with it. And similarly, the Arihant 1, 2, and 3, as they become operational, would be an asset of the SFC, Strategic Forces Command, 
and not of the Indian Navy. Indian Navy will control SSNs which are separately on order like Chakra and other ones as they come about. Uh, last some points on issues on security. We are quite conscious on this issue. Uh, normal systems are in place. We have a strategic armament safety authority uh, which is responsible for storage, transfer procedures and all nuclear armaments. Uh, they are also responsible all relating to safety and security on nuclear and delivery assets at all times. They, this authority is again under the NSA under the Executive Council and reports directly to the NCA. So please note the system change. Everything is being now concentrated under the Executive Council whose head is the NSA and who has now come to about as the main component of India's nuclear command and control. That's it. Thank you very much. Yeah, open. Thank you, Aaron. Um, I have all these questions. Yeah, please. But uh, I'll just ask one or two, and I'll open the floor for discussion. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that I want to dig into is the civil-military relations. You know, there is the literature outside. There is the critics allege in the realm of India's civil-military relations that there are three main problems and three subsidiary ones. Civilian bureaucrats lack expertise to mine India's services effectively, and that politicians are generally apathetic in military issues. So going back to your presentation, is the appointment of the SPS a means to address the issue of bridging some of these knowledge and information asymmetries in the civilians dealing with nuclear issues? Um, could you explain what the triggers might be that led to its formation? And when and how did the realization on the PMO dawn to develop a secretariat to deal with these issues? Okay. Um, uh, I have a subsidiary <coughs> question, but I'll okay. listen to Now, look, I mean, India has its fair share of civil military relations problems. Everybody has them. The point to note is, as far as the, and I'm seeing my, my answer to the nuclear command authority is concerned. And as far as the nuclear command authority is concerned, the structure is well defined. The structure defined is there is the Strategic Forces Command, which is an integrated body. I repeat, it's an integrated body. Then we have the Strategic Planning Staff. Now, how did the Strategic Planning Staff come about? It came about while well, we did a series of internal exercises. We, we went into this whole problem of trying to see how to exercise the most effective command and control and the problem which you are talking about, bringing the military inside the loop, etc., came about. So, so it was felt that in India's case, it always will be important, it will always will be necessary, given the political dynamics of the country, that a command must rest with the civilian authorities. Now, how do we get the right, the right sort of people into the system? So, so the, so the idea which came about was create a small nuclear staff which acts as a think tank. Within the PMO, strategic planning staff was created. And uh, we t I like to take a bit of credit in the sense that we were part of a, a task force within the National Security Council which did these exercises. 
and in our report that we have recommended a small staff to be created so this staff of the strategic planning staff is an is an is in process in being as yet it's not fully matured fully developed it's, it is it is it will continue to add and subtract people as it as the need is felt so uh, it rather than to have a full fledged structured system which is which is sort of uh, uh, you know uh, which can't be changed or or a part of a a constitutional system this is a power, this has been created primarily to assist the executive council in its in its uh, role in fulfilling uh, credible development of india's nuclear assets depending on how they perceive the threat the sfc on the other hand is is a hands on organization which manages an operational aspects of this thing so so right now from my perspective i see there is no contradiction in terms so the the the, the system is fully developed the, there is a, the and 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 the and the linking is being done by the strategic forces commander who is the secretary of the national security council uh, this thing the executive council as and also has with and has a good relationship with the strategic planning staff because he was head of the strategic forces command in his last avatar so it's so that is how this whole uh, synergy is being created within the system and also the synergy is being created by bringing the bark as well as the atomic energy commission as also the drdo into the system so so there is no contradictions as they are perceived of course there are functional issues which which there are there everywhere else but there are no large uh, discontent or 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 aspects which should worry us okay so following up on this i was just wanted to pick up on some of these questions so would you agree that all the hires on the sps are made after the folks re- retire from the parent agencies is this a deliberate issue No, 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 no. Or oh, no, no. Only the head is the retired guy. Okay. Everybody else is a serving guy. Sorry, I had misunderstood. Yeah, if I get and is that wrong, a deliberate issue that head should be a retired? Yeah, guy? that is because of continuity sake, right? Because we the, instead of having a a new guy coming and telling him, "Hi, what's nuclear weapon?" So you get a guy who's been the SFC commander for two years and who who understands the dynamics, operational dynamics. Then he can apply his mind much more clearly. And similarly, is the aspect coming in from people from the atomic energy as well as the DRDO. And so the SPS is directly responsible to the NSA. It directly reports to the NSA. Absolutely. So what are the oversight mechanisms that the NSA has to ensure? what are some of the oversight mechanisms that you know i don't know uh, what is exactly meant by oversight mechanisms because uh, the com- so sps reports to him something and the nsa usually i understand is a busy person case, yeah. one is a busy person and then he is a journalist coming out from one of the services either the foreign service i think we've not had an nsa from the ias mostly from ips and uh, the indian police service and the foreign service his understanding of the issues and yeah you know uh, okay uh, you see uh, uh, please don't forget the two other bodies which i talk about strategic planning group is the committee of secretaries and also the national security advisory board 
you know, they support, they support the National Security Council Secretary. So if there are any oversights required, any, any, any detailed assessments done, they need not be going through this body, they can be gone through this body. So there are a number of routes to ensure that uh, one of the points which you make about the NSA being busy, uh, that's that's one of the reasons there uh, that there is being talk about creating a permanent chairman chief of staff committee. So the permanent chairman chief of staff committee is being more looked upon as a as a as a as a deputy to the NSA for the management of the entire system because he's busy in other political matters. But uh, like I said, the decision is still pending. Okay. Finally, I, I just wanted to uh, mm -hmm. get your views on. How different this is from Pakistan's SPD? What are the similarities and differences that you notice? Look, by and large, uh, the systems are same. Pakistan, I would say, is, uh, is over the years has been de has been developed purely under the military's oversight. So to that extent, they are, uh, you know, they are, that's a very military-centric system. But the decision making, uh, the SPD has developed by and large into a fairly organized body which looks at large number of issues, it looks at uh, the weapon development, the safety and security, looks at arms control, all the, all the other issues they look at. So, uh, so, so, so their system is more synergized in, in totality. In our systems, the issues regarding arms control, etc., are directly under the MEA. They do not; it's not don't don't part of it. But in our system, if you look at the only the weaponized part of the nuclear system, uh, I don't think there's very much of this thing, except for the fact is that you will find too many civilians in our system mm. and very few uh, uniform people. In there, you will find few uh, civilians and more uniform, and that's the only difference I see. Yeah, please identify yourself and wait for the microphone. Craig uh, Johnson from the Center. Thank you very much for uh, what I found a very informative a very informative brief. Um, Thank you, Craig. I hope you'll have an early opportunity to share it with yes. starting colleagues soon. Um, a question. Um, in years past, Indian spokesmen would stress we're not going to make, repeat the, uh, the U.S.-Soviet mistakes of the Cold War, and in particular, the perception of the notion of uh, systems being on hair-trigger states. And so there was an emphasis on demating, de-alerting uh, states. That's not in dispute now. And presumably, as uh, technologies evolve, as you move towards uh, kind of transition. You know, yes, uh, what, uh, if you notice somewhere down in my initial slides, nuclear signaling is becoming a very important part. And 
this is an issue which is uh, which is currently under hot debate within our country and that is uh, there is a certain degree of opaqueness in terms of our command and control system operationalization of a command and control system which even uh, acknowledged strategic analysts have have sort of raised this issue repeatedly uh, so uh, so if you notice uh, what we have started doing is uh, every time the political council meets uh, some aspects of those those council meetings are are being uh, uh, released to the press to the media to ensure to tell them that meetings are taking place and there are regular meetings etc but on the issue of signaling that will form a very credible and important part of our operationalization and our mobilization perspective as and when we take that step forward uh, in terms of the fact is that when we do our uh, conventional mobilization of the of the level that we want to do and if we are if we are forming part and parcel of and we believe that there has to be a certain degree of strategic mobilization as a context of that there would be a huge amount of signaling that we will try and make before before we do that to 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 tell the other side the idea is to dissuade the other side uh, not to get into this uh, you know posture and counter posture kind of a kind uh, kind of a matrix and and uh, and and keep the nukes out of uh, the perspective but but we believe that at some stage they will have to take a decision on that and therefore uh, we have a slight advantage i tell you what our advantage is we don't have to go so close to the border we can from 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 the middle tier of our country which is far away from uh, majority of their weapon systems we can still pose a credible damage a uh, credible threat so so you know so in our case we we have we have an advantage of flexibility and and what would say rear deployment to 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 do the same kind of a task so but we would be signaling to the other side that look we need not change the posture from our recess deterrence or or as as the uh, as the current state of deterrence and try and change the posture primarily because because of uh, of the way uh, the conventional forces are going to be utilized but i, I it's it's a it's a very difficult dilemma uh, which will have to be do and, and and this is one of the aspects which is being studied by me is in this part of my project and this is one of we you know maybe when we do our simulation we'll come to much more some better answers frankly it's a dilemma at this point in time and i don't think very many people have answered except for the fact signaling and how credible the signaling would be and how how effectively will that other side take it there again we have a problem in terms of of a political signaling versus military signaling and how the, how the two aspects uh, the, the the culturally the two uh, two sides to react to those those signals so that's an issue that we we face do you have a question yeah. thank you very much raghuveer goel from india globe and asia today i have a uh, three part question maybe one are the indian nuclear and the pakistan nuclear are they safe out of the hands of the terrorists and second um 
how this uh, civil nuclear agreement with the U.S. and India, between U.S. and India, will help uh, uh, Indians as far as the nuclear uh, concern? And finally, um, when uh, General Musharraf came here in Washington, he said that, give me 15 minutes, I will destroy more than half of India. And uh, now also, while he's in Pakistan, still threatening that uh, we will use nuclear against India, and we will be, and you have heard recently, even the, some of the members of the terrorists wanted by India, they are in Pakistan, and they are also threatening. My question is on this uh, posture that, uh, uh, how seriously should India take these threats? Uh, and uh, that's all. Thank you. On the question of Indian safety of the Indian nuclear assets, I can give you a guarantee they are very safe and there no terrorists can get their hands on. As far as the other side is concerned, that's something I cannot answer. On the issue of uh, Indo-US uh, nuclear deal, uh, that's, that's important for us because we, as you know, we did not have enough fissile material with our own country. We did not have enough uranium. So it has helped us to, to solve that problem. To, to that extent, our, our, our problems are sorted out. But uh, on the uh, last question is that I only hope uh, Sena Council prevails on the other side and, and we do not get into a nuclear exchange. And I'm, I'm sure those are more rhetorical statements meant for internal consumption. In India, nobody takes them seriously. Samir Lawani from the Rand Corporation. Yeah. Uh, Brigadier Segal, I'm wondering, you talked a little bit about how no first use might be somewhere between in the sand and in cement, but what about massive retaliation? What's the debate on that right now? Is there some movement away from it seeming that it's potentially less credible with a, a tactical nuclear option on the other side? Okay, let me ask you a counter question. What is tactical nuclear weapon option? What is the degree of damage does our tactical nuclear weapon does? And one side uses tactical nuclear weapon. How many weapons will he use? Will he use one weapon, two weapons, four weapons, six weapons? What is his use? See, the question basically is like this. When the other side uses a tactical nuclear weapon, we're talking about salvos firing. We're talking about rocket launcher systems, okay? We're not talking about one weapon firing. As a, so there is a damage criteria. Does that damage criteria of that salvo impact the political decision making of a country like India and, and, and in terms of damage, okay? Now, if the damage template is impacts our political decision making, the political decision will be made accordingly. So, India, India says it will react, it will have a massive retaliation, okay? The degree of retaliation is never covered by us. Please notice. The retaliation can be zero, it could be 100, or it could be anything in between. So I am not going to sit down here and define, and this is, I know this debate is coming from this side. Uh, this is an interesting academic debate, but let me explain it to you. There is no question of, of delineating the nature of response at this particular juncture. That's a command decision that will have to be made. You and Rand try to do a gaming on that and you realize to yourself that there would have to be a some degree of response. But what is the nature of that response is something which will have to be defined by how, how, the, how the 
detonations have been perceived, the degree of damage that they have done. Try and place a damage template on, on a use of tactical nuclear weapons and see how, how would the government on the other side will react to that. So once you get that thing, you will get the answer yourself. There's no, there, there, there are no fixed answers, sir. And I don't think there is any debate either. Please understand it. There is zero debate on that. The debate is, the, is correlated to our nuclear targeting strategy. Nuclear, there is a nuclear, nuclear targeting plan. Okay? The nuclear targeting plan will be fired. How much of the nuclear targeting plan will be fired, etc., etc., will be a decision that will be taken at that particular point in time in terms of political context of how the retaliation should be. So, but the other side should realize one thing it will be more than what we received in, from, from that side and it will be massive. And, and therefore, the idea is to dissuade the other side that they can't get away by the fact that they can use tactical nuclear weapons and, and, and see this is, this is the whole this great big uh, uh, stability instability debate you know. So, you have a at one level of strategic stability because both countries have equal number of nuclear weapons. So, one country says that I will use my conventional asymmetry under certain circumstances in retaliation to uh, the, uh, the sub-conventional asymmetry that the other side has. In retaliation to that sub-conventional asymmetry which is basically proxy war being waged, to we will use our conventional asymmetry. The other side says if you use con uh, your conventional asymmetry, I will use my leverage that conventional asymmetry with my tactical nuclear weapons which is part of my conventional deterrence. Okay, so where do we all land up into this whole debate? So what are, what my logic is, my personal logic is, the whole thing is hugely destabilizing. Don't go down this game. Don't go down this road. It will not, not help anybody. So you think you can wage a proxy war without, without any cost? I'm, I'm afraid this won't happen. It can happen up to a point where we can, we believe we can afford to deal with it internally, but at a point in time it, it, it crosses our threshold, there will be retaliation. You will say, I'll, I will use my nuclear weapons. So, we will say it will be massive retaliation. So, we are going down a very, very unstable path. So, this is what I say is, don't do this game. It's, it's a no-win game, totally no-win game. I'll go back to something that I think rocket technology was mentioned somewhere. And in your presentation, I saw that, you know, there are, you said that the principles of national command and control. It mentioned space-based and other assets will be created to perform early warning communications, damage mm -hmm. and detonation functions. I've looked at the five-year plans, the latest five-year plans mm -hmm. that was released by the Planning Commission before, I think it was released last year had no provision for any of the early warning satellites. Just try to look. You know, it had 59 missions that were totaled uh -huh. in one way or the other. Hmm. Um, there were communication satellites that were, and you looked at the communication, the projected requirement of communications in India. It's extensive on the civilian side and as well. There is, there is now a credible military side which is which has come about, which has come about in, uh, and that plan is being handled by the headquarters integrated defense staff. The space oh, cell. Uh, space cell and uh, early warning satellites form part of that plan. And then it leads me to my next question. Okay. Which is, 
obviously, you know, there is a big debate about who does some of these functions, which is the Indian Space Research Organization, which is heavily civilian oriented, hmm. or the DRDO, the Defense Research and Development Organization, which looks after security matters. Um, and as far as I understand, that there is a lot of capacity inside ISRO, but the capacity inside DRDO, do you have any visibility into that? So, I'll only, only thing I will say is that there is this capacity, there is this planning which is being done, and there is shortly, I think, uh, hopefully, certainly within this year, you probably hear about creation of the uh, Space Command. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I will not answer more than that. Sir. Yes. Yeah. Um, Zia from Princeton. Um, in your very first slide, um, where you started talking about credible minimum deterrence and massive retaliation, the presumption is that with all these sequential targeting plans and integrated plans and so on and so forth, um, you have some presumptions about what Pakistan's leadership will see as a sufficient deterrent. So my question is that in the same way you talked about nuclear signaling, that it's hard to know how the other person will read your signal. Yes. The question is, could you say how you've approached the question, what does it take to deter Pakistan in a wartime setting? I mean, would you blow up Islamabad, Lahore, Karachi? Faisalabad, all of them, one of them at a time, two of them at a time. I mean, how have you approached the question of what would it actually take to deter a Pakistani leadership in crisis and wartime in terms of this way of thinking that you've outlined here? No, no, uh, sorry, I didn't get, what do you, wait, no, what do you mean by deterring Pakistan? We are not deterring Pakistan at all. What we are trying to say is, our, 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 our analogy is very simple. Pakistan, from our perspective, is waging an asymmetrical, unconventional war against India. At some stage, India will need to respond militarily. Our military response to that is going to be only a punitive response to tell Pakistan that the cost to be paid for that kind of a war. We are not getting into a nuclear exchange. We do not want to get into a nuclear exchange. We do not want to deter Pakistan. But we also want to tell Pakistan is that we are not getting deterred by the tactical nuclear weapons, etc. And that they, and we firmly believe, and we challenge your belief. The only deterrence that we are telling Pakistan is we challenge Pakistan's belief that there is space for limited war. And we shall create the space for limited war. And in dealing with that space for limited war, if Pakistan uses tactical nuclear weapons, there will be a price to be paid. That's the bottom line of our strategy. You now question me on that? I'll answer you. We are not no, deterring Islamabad. We are not deterring anybody. We are just sending a clear-cut message. Your ex-SPD chief comes to Carnegie and makes a statement to say that we, it's foolish on India's part to believe that there is space for a limited war. I'm just challenging his, his logic. 
Yeah, I mean, in this very building, I mean, uh, I was part of a conversation with um, the former head of Indian Strategic Forces Command, Admiral Shankar, oh, mm -hmm. on exactly this question mm -hmm. only a few months ago. And I said specifically, if the Pakistanis carry out their plan, if they can, of using these tactical nuclear weapons against Indian armored forces, will you destroy Islamabad? And he said, yes, they should have no doubt that we will destroy their cities if they attack our tanks. And I'm just asking you, when you have thought this process through, how have you approached the question of how many cities will you destroy as part of this punitive approach? Will you destroy them one at a time, or three or four of them at a time, or all of them at once? I'm just asking you to yes, clarify. Sir, my answer to your question is what I answer to his question, uh, Gaurav's question. The, uh, my answer to your question is, is, I don't know what Vijay Shankar said. Vijay Shankar might have been more rhetorical than I am, but I'm simply trying to give you an answer is that decision on how, what to, how much to use against Pakistan will be a political decision to be taken at that particular point in time. And my personal view is, my personal view will be that we will not go beyond a certain level because we do not want to get into a, a, a free, for all, free for all nuclear exchange. So whether we're going on to counter force targeting, whether we go for counter, uh, counter value targeting, will all be a decision that cannot be sitting down and taken in this room. I'm sorry. That's not a decision that can be taken in this room, nor can it be delineated. Thank you, uh, Professor Wayne Glass from University of Southern California. Sir. Um, I'd like to explore with you uh, some understanding of maybe the nuances of what seems to be a very simple term, no first use. Hmm. Uh, help me understand India's attitude towards that concept. Uh, I can imagine scenarios when, where the Pakistanis perhaps take certain measures to move certain forces and do certain things that send signals, uh, but they're not, that's not a detonation per se. Uh, is that term no first use as simple and clear as it sounds or are there nuances within that term that allows some flexibility of interpretation by the Indian government? The firm, no first use stands for Indian forces or Indian territories not hit anywhere. As simple as that. What Pakistan wants to have a detonation inside their own country, break away from the ban, etc., that's their call. We'll take some decisions, some, some action on that. Not to, deter, uh, not to nuke Pakistan or use nuclear weapons against Pakistan, certainly not, or, or China for that matter. But as far as we are concerned, if Indian territory or Indian forces anywhere, and that term anywhere has been, has been brought in for a particular reason, are not attacked by nuclear weapons, India shall not use nuclear weapons. So in in effect, Indian political leadership believes Indian nuclear weapons are a political deterrence. I repeat, political deterrence and not for, for fighting. They do not see any use of nuclear weapons for war fighting. It is, it is for that reason, and that reason alone, 
there is this whole logic of conventional military modernization, capacity building, etc., 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 and building up other space based and other assets, primarily for this reason, rather than uh, spending too much of money. Of course, we are, the technological developments continue with side and side, but those technological developments are not Pakistani centric, certainly not Pakistani centric. They are, they are to deal with other aspects. Har. I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. I'd like to turn to the subject of stability because what you have raised really is instability with little hope for how you're going to approach stability. As you know, on the Pakistani side, their argument is that because India is developing a cold start strategy, which India denies, Pakistan therefore has to develop tactical nuclear weapons to prevent that from happening. I think the Pakistani argument is nonsensical, but indeed that's what they're doing. Now you take a Mumbai, you take a Kashmir, you take a miscalculation in 1971 that caused the partition of East Pakistan, and now you have a potential for an unintended nuclear conflict. So what do you think can be done and should be done to put in place some measures to promote stability and de-escalation, which I do not see taking place now, and what role, if any, might outside powers, United States, maybe even Russia, or China, but less likely China, have in promoting some time of arrangement so that there is escalation control if there is war by accident or war by mistake or because of retaliation for a future Mumbai, what can be done to prevent a situation getting out of hand? You haven't really responded to that. Oh, no, a very simple answer. Though. The answer is take away the fact that don't stop Pakistan from waging non-conventional uh, war against India. This is as simple as that. I saw this, this whole notion of a proxy war, etc., as, as a state principle must stop. And if it stops, there is no, there is no reason for, for uh, uh, thing. And we can thereafter, if one day stops, and there is no, uh, and there is a commitment from the Pakistani political and military establishment on that ground, then we can enter into Lahore 2.0, arms control negotiations. We have been discussing this on the sidelines. The question is very simple. Well, it's not simple. And on the sidelines, you've had the Belusa talks, things like that. But I don't believe that there's ever been a direct conversation between chiefs of staff or indeed prime ministers or very senior politicians about this issue. And you assert that the Pakistanis are playing proxy war. The Pakistanis would deny that. Whatever the truth is, the point is that there's a misperception here and I don't see on the political level enough being done on both sides to prevent a situation developing that neither side would want and would later regret. And you take a look at Mumbai, you have another Mumbai again. Mm -hmm. Irrespective of who's responsible, is India going to be so restrained? And there's a chance that it will not be restrained. True. Then what happens? Okay? And so what are we doing to prevent the then what happens? And I don't think that there's much action on both sides. That's what I'm going to do for six weeks, sir. Try to create a simulation for that. And we have done a number of exercises on that. Then what happens? And we are trying to explain to both sides that this is a dangerous route to go, go on. And therefore, therefore, stop it. And until unless you don't stop it, I'm afraid this kind of problem will hang in the air. Will any outside power such as the United States be I'm afraid. The United States try to help a lot of people, sir. It doesn't help very much. So I suggest... Uh, I mean, you can try, but <laughs> it doesn't really help, sir. Because, because you know, it's not—it's not the question. Is not so much. Therefore, 
you made another point regarding talking to the chiefs of staff. No. We believe Pakistan is a democratic country led by a political leadership, irrespective of what kind of political leadership is. The political leadership is the one to be engaged. There is no reason to engage the military on this issue, despite their internal dynamics. The, it's important and necessary for the Pakistani political leadership to come out of the shadows and take political decisions. And if they take, come out of the shadows and take the right political decisions, I do not think the political establishment in India will fall far behind in, in trying to respond to them. The unfortunate part is that the, the control levers are not with the political establishment in Pakistan. And I think if you want to really help, you've been trying for the last 10, 15 years, try and create a more mature political leadership. I mean, the leadership is, I'm not saying they're not mature, but I'm trying to create more formidable political leadership who takes charge, full charge of the nation, rather than allow, the, allow somebody else to call the shots. Uh, thanks, everyone, for a very interesting presentation. I'm uh, Skander Raymond, a, a non-resident fellow here at the Atlantic Council. I'd like to briefly return to the main topic of your presentation, which was command and control. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned in, in one of your slides um, that the custodian and controller concepts were getting increasingly fused. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit or give us some insights on what that means in the context of the formation of India's nuclear triad and how that would play out within um, an SSPN, for example, do you conceive there being civilian employees on board, for example? You heard the answer of Arun Prakash. I will quote that. Okay, that we says no, no, no civilian, but, but they have systems in place. All I can tell you is they have systems in place. The, the technology will take charge of, of, of this whole issue. And we have uh, fairly robust, very low frequency uh, communication capability. Uh, to a fairly large amount of depth. They don't really have to come up to that extent to, to make this kind of communications. So, so, so those issues have been looked into and are being developed. So I, I, I don't think that's going to be a very serious issue. It's, it's going to be as good or as bad as anybody else, but with strong, uh, the, for example, the armament, arming control will be with outside the submarine. It'll, it'll have to come as a part of a signal to the uh, to the captain, etc. See, so. um, you talked about how there was a a ten-year plan hmm. being developed by the strategic planning group, and I'm just wondering whether, as part of your longer-term thinking about the future of Indian nuclear forces, um, you actually imagine an evolution away from the triad over time as issues of survivability and protection become seen to have matured in the same way that over time the British and the French gave up parts of what was previously a triad and have moved to a smaller uh, set of forms of deployment. Because I can imagine that once there is confidence, for example, in your uh, submarine launch ballistic missiles, the argument for keeping bombs on airplanes may not be as obvious yeah, true. or, you know, that even for land-based mobile missiles, that once you have, you know, quiet submarines and uh, missiles with long, with sufficient range. So I'm just curious as to whether you see this 
triad as something that is here to stay, as some nuclear weapon states have determined, or whether you see as part of this evolution that the triad is a transitional step towards something that may actually not require so many diverse forms of deployment? Uh, to be very honest to you, you, my understanding as of now is that people are too involved in do, ensuring that the triad becomes operational to look at these issues. But uh, uh, I presume uh, logic and rationality says that they would certainly look at from that perspective. They would certainly look at. And, and certain, certainly over a period of time, we will have less dependence on on the aircrafts. That's 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 a given. But uh, on the essential part of the, of the futuristic nuclear nuclear forces, I am afraid I, I don't have the requisite knowledge or the information to answer your question. Sir Colonel Raman from the National Defence University. So the majority of the discussion has been dominated by our you know, the doctrine and the scenario versus Pakistan. But as you had alluded to earlier, we, were, we, we also have a response against China. So what do you think the scenarios or the situations may be in which we would employ uh, these weapons against China? And since we face, uh, you know, an asymmetry on the reverse side there, do you think the NFU still holds valid against that adversary? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, as far as Pakistan, uh, Chinese are concerned, uh, the bottom line is is remains the same. No first use vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. Uh, we do not visualize uh, too many scenarios on the land borders where we feel that uh, the asymmetry is going to be so much that we we will have to resort to something like tactical nuclear weapons, etc. That's not that's not the perception at this particular point in time. We we done a huge number of gamings on this scenario. But uh, what we are trying to develop is a credible strategic capability vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese, not primarily with the Chinese, but the ranges that take care of Chinese threats. So there is a triad uh, which is going to be operational. Then there is MERV systems which are being thought to be created. Uh, they are. Uh, we are also concerned about um, anti-ship ballistic missile threat uh, to our aircraft carriers. Uh, like Iskandar Rahman would tell you, he's done a nice arcing of deployment somewhere near Xinjiang. You can anti-ship ballistic missile deployed over there, covers the entire quadrant of the Arabian Sea. And similarly, if you bring in somewhere close to Rohil, in, in Kunming, in Yunnan, it covers the most of the Bay of Bengal. So we have to look at those issues. So if, if we look at those kind of major strategic threats to us, then we have to also take into account the ability to hit their you know, targets like Hainan and issues like that. So bottom line is that there is a fair amount of thinking being done in terms of developing strategic assets to, to deal with a possible Chinese uh, nuclear coercion. I would use the word nuclear coercion rather than a nuclear threat. So, uh, and uh, as far as in conventional terms is concerned, uh, 
we are not uh, so much, uh, I mean, you know, there is not so much of thinking on that. But please, I'd like to highlight one part. When we take the Chinese nuclear forces into account, I just want to highlight to the audience, is the fact is that only about 65 systems from the Chinese have an ICBM capability, only 65 out of his total 250 weapons. The balance of the weapons are of IRBM and MRBM range. Okay? Now, now you, how many of these IRBMs and MRBMs you can use against Japan and Korea and etc. etc. So there are and, and, and base 3 and there are some two or other bases which are deployed and deferred to the western uh, uh, sector which can cover India completely. So we take cognizance of those threats and we are, we are aware that if should there be push come to a shop, it, it, that will have to be taken care of. And there are also, perceptionally, I like, I like to share with you, is that uh, as our communications and capacities develop, particularly for operations in the high altitude with mechanized forces, you know what I'm talking about, <coughs> Uh, then there will be a, a credible threat to the, the Tibetan plateau. Now, if, that, if we can pose that kind of a credible threat to the Tibetan plateau, I presume there will be changes that take place and that we will need to take cognizance of that. So, that is what our long-term thinking is, uh, that's, but it's not nuclear-oriented. It's, it's more conventional. If there are no questions, we'll break the norms and end early. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.